Sass Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SaaS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit austinlawrence.com today and let's build something bigger. Welcome to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses forward. Welcome to SaaS Backwards, a podcast that helps SaaS CMOs and CEOs to accelerate growth and enhance profitability. Our guest today is David Kazicki, co-founder and CEO of Beam Dynamics. It's a SaaS enterprise asset management platform that helps audio and video engineers to better manage and maintain production equipment to reduce costly downtime. Hey, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ken. Excited to be here. We're really excited to have you here. Before we get going, could you tell us just a little bit more about yourself and your company, Beam Dynamics? Yeah, certainly. So I've always had the entrepreneurial bone and had started companies all throughout my childhood and growing up into college and went to college and started a company and it didn't work out as I wanted. So I said, all right, I got to hit the workforce and grind my teeth in a few different jobs. And in every role that I was in, I just always continued to find myself saying, there's got to be a better way to make what we're doing more efficient, or there's got to be a way to have our team come together better. So there's always this inkling in the back of my mind that it was just a matter of time until I had the right idea and concept that was really going to work. And so fast forward about 10, 12 years after I graduated from college, and I was working for one of the largest manufacturers in the film and broadcast industry. I visited over 200 film and TV studios and sets every single year. And I continued to see engineers on those sets struggling with virtually the same problem everywhere I went. And that's namely that these engineers have to manage 10,000 or more different pieces of technology where that's hardware, software, services, and it's from hundreds of different manufacturers. And these engineers are constantly being tasked to stay up to date on firmware and software updates, critical security patches, general maintenance, accessing manuals and documents. And I would come to them and say, hey, this is great. We've got a portal for you to come to. You can get all that stuff. And they would look at me and shake their head and they'd say, well, you're just one of 300 vendors that I work with. So that means that I have to go to 300 of these places. And so that kind of got me thinking with, could we actually build a platform that would allow engineers within these environments to upload a list or connect their inventory list? And then we could actually pull in data from these hundreds or even thousands of vendors and manufacturers and present the engineers with all the data they need in a common user interface. So whether they're looking at a Sony camera or an IBM server or an Ebert's backend playout system, doesn't matter. They're getting the data in the same way. It's tied to what they own. And instead of searching all over the place, it's all brought to that one location and organized for them. And as a result, they know what needs to be done. They don't miss security patches and firmware updates as they come due. And that information is right at their fingertips to be able to solve problems much faster. It's a really interesting idea. And the idea that you take this freely available or widely dispersed information and aggregate it it's great. It's spinning money out of the ether. 
It's a wonderful business problem that you've solved as well. And I think it's interesting that you're essentially a subject matter expert who came into a solution almost given to you by your clients, right? Yeah, I think there's always the big crazy idea that you want to have, but as I matured a little bit more in my experience, I continue to see that really the businesses that are going to stick and stay are the ones that are solving problems. And the problems continue to persist, but they change. And in this scenario, this problem wasn't an issue maybe 10, 15 years ago because there weren't as many network devices. There weren't IoT devices. Not everything had firmware and software. So these engineers pretty much knew they could open up the back of a piece of equipment and probably fix it themselves. Today, that's not possible. You know, your car is getting new firmware updates to it so that I can do more things. It's the same with this technology. So these engineers are really having to do a job that they haven't had to do before. There's a lot of legacy engineers within this industry, and this is just a new problem they're encountering. And I happen to be there and just hear again and again. I saw the same thing everywhere. And I think the challenge is when you're siloed to looking only at problems within your organization, it may be a small problem for you, but I saw that small problem in hundreds of different places, knowing that it was a consistent problem across the industry and maybe wouldn't be worth solving for one individual engineering group, but across thousands of engineering groups, there was certainly a big business to be had. So there's a lot of stuff in what you said that I really like. <laughs> One of them is not having it be a fever dream, but you're actually trying to solve a real business problem that you can quantify, right? You can touch it, feel it, and quantify the business problem as opposed to it being something fanciful. And when we get to talking about fundraising and stuff, I think we're going to revisit this kind of pragmatic approach to entrepreneuring. So you had this vision, but you're not a technologist, are you? No, <laughs> I like to say I can be dangerous with it, I know, but I don't know enough to actually get the job done. So I've always been the one with the ideas and dreamy to a certain extent, but actually worked with a former colleague of mine at LG Electronics. And I had this idea and said, hey, I'm seeing this everywhere. He was a mechanical engineer. He didn't actually have a background either, but he's seeing the same problem. But what was unique about us coming together as co-founders where I had this big vision and the ideas he was the one that could actually execute and get things done. So the way I describe it is I'm right-brained and right-handed. He's left-brained and left-handed. I'm a Mac. He's a PC. So somehow the wires got crossed. We, we look at the same problem. We have completely different solutions. But at the end of the day, we come together and usually come to the same decision-making process. You know, it can be hard and patient at times. But when I started this business, I knew I'd started other things. And it was really a lack of motivation from the two co-founders coming together. And so that's actually something I sought out really early on. And this kind of marriage or partnership of two very different people has actually made something really great. And then from there, we started to see where we had weaknesses, which is on the technology side. And we've been able to bring on a wonderful CTO and a big technology team to manage it. But really, it's people that are willing to get their hands dirty and bring different perspectives is really important in the early stages. I know for a fact I wouldn't be here if it was just me trying to run this. It just wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. Well, I think you have to seek out technical competency if you're not a techie yourself. So good for you that you found that through your partner and the CTO. This is a niche, but you said there's thousands of potential customers. Do you have an idea of how big the whole market is for this? Yeah. So just in the film broadcast production space, we see there's over 200,000 potential customers. It's not just TV and film studios like your local TV station, the NBCs, the Netflix of the world. 
but it's really anywhere that pro-avir production equipment exists. Think of going into stadiums and arenas, going to concert venues, even houses of worship and churches nowadays have large production and AV areas. So we're seeing actually a rapid growth in content creation and content consumption. So this type of equipment is entering more spaces, but that's definitely our first market vertical. But what we've seen in the technology we've built is we are really focused on this initial market, but we're actually having people approach us from other industries like healthcare, like we had a helicopter company come to us a couple of weeks ago and say, hey, can you help us manage our fleet of helicopters? So there's other applications where there's highly technical equipment and needs to have updates regularly. There's lots of vendors and manufacturers involved. That's a ripe opportunity for us. So all we see film and broadcast is a great place for us to lay the foundation. We certainly see the opportunity to move into other verticals. And that's probably going to come depending on how we how fast we want to go and what our fundraising ends up being, which I know we'll talk a little bit about. So that's really exciting. I think that you've elaborated almost a ideal scenario as a startup, right? You have a rich first market, which you understand pretty well, right? You have years in the business, so you really do understand it. And then you can see not very far away. I think like the healthcare use case makes total sense. Just think the average 400-bed hospital must have thousands of devices that, from a tech standpoint, look a lot like an AV proposition. Exactly. really good way to sum up or an analogy is Amazon brings millions of sellers and connects them to millions of buyers. So it's really great from a sales perspective. But the more research we continue to do in looking for platforms that brought millions of product owners to the people that make those products, really, there's nothing that exists. There's enterprise asset management, which is just static, but we actually wanted to bring a place where instead of focusing on the selling process, we wanted to focus on the ownership process to bring these millions of product owners to the millions of manufacturers they work with and close that gap. So we honestly see this as our blue ocean opportunity because there's really no one operating in that space. So it's how quickly can we fill that vacuum is really what we're focused on over the next couple of years. Is there opportunity also addressing the manufacturers as potential customers? That's actually a little bit how we started because I saw all the problems that manufacturers had where we had better access to know what types of customers are buying our products, what are the trends in the industry, and even from service issues. So only about 10% of service-related problems make it back to the manufacturer. If someone says, oh, I'll just fix it myself or there'll be an issue and we don't need to contact them. If we could filter that data back to the manufacturer, it would be really tremendous for them to be able to make product decisions and marketing decisions on. But it's the chicken and the egg. We need people to put their assets and inventory in and use it in order to have a value prop to the manufacturer. So right now we're focused on the end users, but within the next year or nine to 12 months, we'll have a solution that we can actually provide to manufacturers. And they've been incredibly receptive to what we've talked about. Say, hey, if you get this up to speed, we're very interested in partnering and working even closer with you. Yeah, I'll bet the losing control of your customers is a big issue in this kind of hardware, right? You almost don't know where your stuff is. Yes. That's really awesome. And you create a data value, right? So you're not only creating a subscription mm -hmm. value, at the end user, but you're creating a data value, which also probably has a valuation implication, right? Exactly. And for most of these manufacturers, they typically know less than 5% of who owns their products. 
because so many things these days are sold through resale channels, whether that's Amazon or B&H in our industry or even system integrators and resellers, most manufacturers don't actually know whose products their hands are in. And that's a big challenge and a big thing that these manufacturers are trying to close the gap on. You know, warranty cards and offering an extra year warranty really isn't cutting it. And what we saw, why aren't people giving their data and why aren't they sharing it? It's because there's no value in doing it. So Beam is really trying to provide value to the people that own the assets to make them want to give their data, which we can then use in lots of different ways to ultimately believe help the entire industry save money and be more efficient, not just one side of it, but actually making both sides better as a business and better as an industry. So you talked about this as creating a category, like it's a problem, right? And it sounds like it's a solution for a problem that's existed for a long time. So did people not have words to describe this issue or is it because there was no solution? The solution just doesn't have a name. A little bit of both. We probably changed the name of our product category 10, 15 times since we started just trying to find a match because we're really the only company in the world that we know that's actually bringing data from thousands of sources and tying it to what someone actually owns. And that's really the unique thing that we didn't have a good name for. We said, well, we're kind of on you to manage your inventory, but we're like, we're so much more than that. But we're also bringing in data, but we're doing more than the data. We're doing something with the data. So we went and tried to fit ourselves into an inventory management. We called ourselves a type of a CRM, right? Just like you manage all your customers and the data surrounding them. We're a PRM, product relationship management, managing all the data and relationships around your products. And now we've hit into enterprise asset management with data built in. So it continues to move around. But I think when you name a category, people understand quickly what you actually do. And early on in our business, because we didn't have a good category, it was hard for a potential customer to say, so what do you actually do? You know, what like a CRM, it's pretty clear what it is. An ERP, you basically know what it is in the value. But for us, you're like, okay, well, you're kind of inventory management, but you're adding this. So we're still working on it. We call our platform an asset intelligence platform. I think we're narrowing in, but yeah, it's hard to define a new category that there really isn't a true competitive offering for. There's similar things, but no one that's looking and managing data and assets the way we are. And it's a challenge, but as we grow and evangelize, I think that's one of the things we have to do is define a new category in this industry that revolves around managing the life cycle of everything that you own. Yeah. And it feels like you're getting <laughs> a lot closer. It's also a great narrative for the challenger sale where you can help people to discover the problem in their business. And I got to believe anybody with more than a hundred or so pieces of equipment that are relatively recent has this problem, right? I mean, it's a pretty universal problem that people probably have figured there's no solution for, right? Correct. Or that it takes tremendous amount of manual data entry, which the old systems did, right? If you wanted to add a manual, you had to go find it on the internet and add it. If you wanted to find firmware and software updates, that was on an individual to go search the web or sign up for the email newsletter and hope they can understand, oh, do I own the PXW-Z or do I own the PXW-F? That can make a difference. And it was just unsustainable. So it's, it's getting people to understand not only the solution that we have, but what is the underlying problem and how can the engineering team be more efficient if they had a tool to solve that? Are these sales calls relatively easy then once you get people to an aha moment? 
Yeah, I used to joke with some of the other, we're in an incubator here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I'd go in, do a demo, especially early stage, and we're just like, hey, do you want to be a trial or pilot customer? And I'd come out 15 minutes later with a smile on my face and said, got another one. And they're like, geez, this is crazy. And I said, it resonates. People get it. And so now my goal is how quick can I get someone to a trial? Because most of these groups are using Excel spreadsheets. They don't have a way to get this data. There's some tools, but they see this and they're like, geez, if I had this, it could just save me so much time and energy. We're still in that early adopter phase. So we're getting the early feedback and early customers and refining it even more. But at first glance, these engineering teams are getting it and they're getting it quickly. And we've even started to see that the larger corporations, so the CTOs and CIOs that could be managing hundreds of locations say, these engineers at the site don't know what they own and what the standards are. How can I know that across 200 locations? I've got to manage potential security breaches. I've got to make sure everyone's off Windows XP. I've got to push updates and there's no way to do that. So we've actually seen over the last couple months that our sales process and our value props actually moved up the value chain to address some of these larger enterprise type problems rather than just the engineers touching the equipment every day. And that's just the evolution of a startup, I think. It is. Although it also means you have some product management implications too, right? You got to go build some new stuff. Yes. And we've built a good foundation, but now we're getting a lot deeper into looking at how customers are using the product what problems they're trying to solve with that product. And I think from my standpoint, we're up to almost 20 employees, very heavy or pretty much all on the engineering side of things. And I've learned as my role as a CEO has changed a little bit from an individual contributor, certainly I'm the face of the company and out there with customers, but understanding the importance of building a strong team and keeping everyone aligned. I think I thought maybe even a year ago, I can say, this is where we're going. We're going to that lighthouse and everyone gets it and understands. And then I took a step back and everyone's running their boats in that direction, but a little all over the place. And so that's actually been a big change for me as a CEO is how do I keep us aligned on the vision? So instead of ships all over the place going towards that direction, we're actually a fleet moving together that's a lot more powerful. And it's been a big challenge. I'd say I'm probably 70% of where I want to be. But that's been the biggest change over the last six months is actually me growing into a CEO role. But it's a really tough transition and you need lots of mentors and advice and some soul searching as well to say what I thought I was going to be doing may not be what I'm actually doing or what the company needs today. And is some of that coming out of the incubator, some of that mentoring? Yep. Some out of the incubator. We've had great angel investors and some angel groups that we work with that have helped as well. And then I think just the community in general, we've been really a big part of the National Association of Broadcasters. We're working with some executives at the bigger TV station groups. They see what we're doing. They see it's a problem. And I've had some engineers at two and a half years ago said, this is cool. Good luck. I hope you can figure it out. And I come back to them a year later, like, all right, it's coming together. It's cool. And I come back now and they're like, wow, like you actually did it. I can't really believe it. And so those people have been good about, hey, if this kid's going to go out there, work this hard and solve a problem in my industry, and he's never been an engineer, but he knows enough, like I want to help him out. I want to mentor him and help him become a better leader. That's awesome. So you sort of tipped your hand a little bit. You've moved to Winston-Salem. 
maybe not on everybody's radar as a hub <laughs> of tech company startups, but tell us about the benefits of a startup being located in Winston-Salem, because I think it's a good story. Yeah. So I grew up in Atlanta and then moved to New York City after college for a little bit and back to Atlanta. And it was time to make a change. It was the middle of COVID. My business partner happened to be in Winston, coincidentally, following his wife for, she's in medicine at Wake Forest here. And so it made sense to move here. And I was worried at first, but we've loved it. And I coined Winston the 10-minute town. Um, my parents will say, how far is this or how far is that? And everything's 10 minutes away, which for a startup is actually pretty awesome because I can work very hard. I don't have to deal with traffic. I can get to where I want to get very quickly. But also, I think that the other big benefit is the community really takes you in. Knowing that there's only a certain amount of startups, particularly you know SaaS-based startups in the small community, and wants to have a hand in helping make that business better. Winston-Salem is the headquarters of Krispy Kreme Donuts, of Reynolds Tobacco, of Haynes Brands. There's been big Wachovia presences back when it was Wachovia here. So it's actually a really rich entrepreneurial community with lots of talented executives that want to jump in and get their hands dirty. I think in bigger cities, you might have a little bit more of a tech or SaaS focused, but today with Zoom and all the things that have happened and how work has changed from COVID, it's actually been really easy to get in touch with investors and mentors and advisors from all over the country and ultimately all over the world. So I think building a company in a smaller town has a lot of benefits from a mental health perspective, but I think you can now build a world-class organization anywhere in the world. We have team members actually all over the world. We've got people in Mexico, Brazil, Mozambique, Kenya, India, the United Kingdom. And it's been amazing to actually build a diverse cultural company in a place that is probably not typically the most culturally diverse and be able to grow something that's really big and exciting. So we're very happy to be here. I don't miss the traffic. I do miss all the restaurants, but that'll come with time. And I think it's a really good place to be in a smaller city. And I think you'd be interested in how much the community embraces you. I think you can be a medium-sized fish in a smaller pond, right? So you're more important to the community and the community can be really important to you. So I think there's actually some nice synergy there. Yeah. And I think within the first, I would say six months of being here and joining the incubator program and some other things, I already felt a part of the community. People knew me and I knew them. I was on different speaking events. And I think that's really unique that within a short period of time, you really feel like you're actually an active participating, contributing member of the community. It's not something that maybe every entrepreneur thinks about or looks at, but starting a company is hard. It's very stressful. And I think having a strong support system where it's not just you're one of a thousand racehorses going as fast as you can, but there's only a few. So that community wants to make those few really excel. And that's what I'm seeing both for Beam as well as some of the other startups that are within this community. What is the startup incubator that you're in there? So it's Winston Starts. They basically have program that moves you through it's from startup to scale up. So there is a the founder of a large vehicle company, Flow Automotive, that owns a lot of dealerships, has donated part of his building two floors to Winston Starts. So you start coming in, you have mentorship, you have a 12-week program getting you up to snuff, 
And then from there, you're on your own to utilize the space, to utilize about 80 mentors with different programming. And really the goal is to get you in when you've raised your first capital, you've got a good idea, you've maybe got some pilot customers and taking you to the 5 million annual revenue standpoint, at which point you graduate. So you start on the one floor, you have a single desk, and then you grow up, you add more team members, add more desks, then you move upstairs, you've got your own dedicated office space. And eventually you exit, but those companies that you know have graduated are now coming back and mentoring the companies that are in there now. So it's fun to have different stages of companies, which I don't think a lot of incubators have, because I can go to someone that is raising their Series A and ask them for advice on us raising our Series seed round right now and understand the challenges and things that they went through. And I do the same for people that are just getting started. So it's really great to mentor down as well as get mentorship above from a peer that's lived the challenge of startup life. Yeah. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't look for help, right? We think we can do it all. And I, so I think the other message here is that there's nothing wrong with admitting you could use support of a community. Certainly, I know I opened an office in London on my own and didn't even look to see if there was help for me. And looking back on it, I wish that I had taken advantage of all the help. It would have made it, <laughs> would have short-circuited the process. So I think it's important to take a look at the options in the community you're in or plan to go to and see if an incubator can be a fit for where you are in life. So I appreciate you sharing that little vision there. Speaking of raising money, can we talk a little bit about your thought process about scaling rapidly with VC monies versus building a business that's going to last and the tension between those two things? Because I really liked your perspective on that. Certainly. So when we got started, we knew we were going to have to raise something to get this business started. With both me and my co-founder not having coding abilities, we couldn't code this ourselves. And software does take money to build and to get to a certain point, right? We're selling to enterprise customers. Those enterprise customers expect a bare minimum of security and feature set and functionality. And we had to build that. So we knew we needed some money, but we were always worried about taking from a traditional VC. What we heard is once you hop on the train, you can't hop off. You've got to run as fast as you can get as big as you can. And honestly, when we first started talking to VCs, they said, well, this is an interesting business. I don't really understand the industry. It sounds cool, but it sounds niche. Netflix alone spent $17.5 billion producing content last year. In my mind, that's not a niche industry. I, I just need to say, <laughs> in the beginning of this episode, we made a pretty clear case that this is a large use case, right? Yes. <laughs> that must and be so, very frustrating. <laughs> so we heard that and it was a challenge because we didn't need a ton of money, but we needed half a million dollars to get started. So the question was, who do you turn to raise that money? The VCs, if you're not looking for two to three million, we're not talking to you. So we had to actually work with angel investors, which was actually a great thing. We had people from the industry, individuals within our community that actually took the first step and invested in us, not just because the idea but because they believed in us as founders. And I think that's one of the things I learned most is that they're investing in you because they believe in you at first. Even I think the VCs eventually do that as well. No doubt. And so, so we've been able to raise a couple of rounds. We've actually done it all through these angel investors. And we got to a point last year and we had the opportunity to move forward with a VC and accept a term sheet. 
But we actually decided not to proceed that way because it was more money than we wanted to take on. Like I said, they have these kind of minimum amounts they want to give you. And we weren't honestly ready to move that fast. We saw that we had something good and we had control over the business and the vision. And so we decided, can we actually build this without raising as much? We actually build something sustainable because I saw from other friends that had taken VC money, it's growth at all cost. Maybe they'd say, hey guys, film industry is great, but we want you to move to healthcare tomorrow. I don't know anything about the healthcare industry. I believe we can get there. It's going to take time. And so we made the decision, our executive team of let's raise from our existing investors again and get a few more in and let's really build something sustainable. We can be positive from a profit perspective within 12 to 18 months if we stayed on the same trajectory, kept our team small and nimble and moved quick. We just weren't ready to turn on the afterburners because not only making you move quicker, you're also giving up a big chunk of your company. There's only so many times you can do that and so many times you can go back to the well to do that. So once we do that, you're kind of moving on to the next stage and the next stage of these VCs where if we can build a strong business, we can get consistent and solid revenue in the next 18 to 24 months. We might not even have to go and raise any more money or we can go to a bank or another traditional mechanism where you don't have to give up equity. You don't have to dilute yourself. And I think that's the interesting thing. We've intentionally designed our business so that we keep all of our options open. I think we're still open to both options, but we're just worried that once we hop on the VC train, we're on it and there's really no turning back. And seeing where our business is and where we can take it, we knew that we could get it a little bit further along with what we had. And that's the decision we make. And we'll come to another fork in the road, probably 12 to 18 months from now, we'll probably come across the similar decision in a different way and see where things go. But we're really happy with the path we've taken thus far. And how are revenues going? Are you now charging for your software? And how's we that are. Yes. So we have several large production companies that are using our platform and paying for our platform. And then we are in corporate proof of concepts, some of the largest TV ownership and production companies in the world. We have ongoing relationships both in the US, Brazil, Mexico, Germany, and the UK. So we've actually seen that our platform is already starting to enter international markets before we're really actively selling it in those international markets. And they're starting to test it and play around with it. The way I describe it is we really set ourselves up well. We've got a really interesting product. We've got great technical competency. We're moving quickly. We've opened the door a crack with a lot of major organizations representing a huge potential. And so really this year is taking that capital and taking those doors that have been opened a little bit for us and really stepping through. So this is our year to take what we've learned, make the product better, and really see by the end of the year that we really have what we would feel is a sustainable business that could keep itself going indefinitely, regardless of what capital structure we want to take. So this is an enterprise sale, but you're a pretty small company. It's a little bit of a mismatch. How are you managing that? There's just been so much positive reception from the C-suite on what we're trying to do in these companies that it really has been easy. There's not a tool like what we have. We've made it really simple to onboard a customer's data and information. So the lift is light, but the benefit is large. And that's what's happening. And with these larger proof of concepts, they're saying, we need this and this, we need SSO, single sign-on, we need the security parameter and this, and we're rapidly doing that to get it up to an enterprise level. But 
it's really just the product and the solutions resonating and that makes the enterprise sale easy. It's a longer sale than we maybe originally thought, but the end output is going to be hopefully much larger. And what was that line? The lift is light, but the benefit is large. Yes. <laughs> I kind of like that. I think that that's a good riff. That's pretty good. <laughs> so as we wrap this up, tell me what you think the next six months looks like for Beam. Where do you see yourself six months or like by the end of the year? Yeah. So we built a very strong foundation on the platform. So we're releasing new features very quickly, helping yeah, address you, uh, some of those. teased one of those out on LinkedIn today. Yes. <laughs> yep. So helping the enterprises have better tools to fit their needs, as well as different tools that other customer types like house of worship, corporations, stadiums and venues need a little different mix. So that's something important. So that's one side of it is the product side. And then the other side is really partnerships. We're working with some very large system integrators and resellers in the industry that have come to us and said, hey, we want to partner with you. We're doing new studio installs at large stadiums and venues at you know NBCs of the world. And can we actually package your software? Because we think it just makes sense. Rather than handing a spreadsheet, let's hand over Beam with all that dynamic information. So you're going to see some announcements about partnerships. And then last is actually giving our data. There's other third parties where people manage assets, whether it's Zendesk and ServiceNow, places like that, or other industry tools that they want that same level of Beam data. And maybe they want to use their existing interface. So we're actually having talks to just feed Beam data to those platforms rather than them having to solely use our interface. So those are the things that are going to come about in the next six to 12 months. But it's a lot of work, but we are very excited about what's to come. And like I said, the door's open. Now it's our opportunity to step through this year. That's great. Hey, if people want to reach you or learn more about Beam, how do they do that? So you can reach me at david at beamdynamics.io or you can visit our website at beamdynamics.io. And on there is a little preview of the platform. So if anyone wants to get a sneak peek of what it actually looks like, they can go there and play around with an interactive preview. Awesome. And if folks want to reach me, I'm on LinkedIn slash in slash Ken Lempit. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so wherever podcasts are distributed, pretty widely available. And David, thanks so much for little deep dive into the life of a young startup company that my bet is you're going to make it pretty big. So I'm going to keep <laughs> looking. Thank you. I appreciate you letting me be here. And it's great to, to share the story and evangelize what we're trying to build. Awesome. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the SaaS Backwards Podcast brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempet at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe and thanks again for listening.